Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today we're going to look at the Gospel according to St. John, the 14th chapter, verses 15 through 26. Um... And it is, it is a gospel that the Church uses often, uh, at least during the sea cycle, for, uh, for the Feast of Pentecost, because it is um, Jesus explaining the work of the Holy Spirit and also promising that the Holy Spirit would come to us. But he also then talks about who we are that the Holy Spirit is coming to. There's a great deal of talk about the Holy Spirit, and it's really kind of interesting because there is there is a tendency, there is a movement in the church that's been here, of course, since the 12th century, um, that kind of separates the work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit chronologically. Um, it was first introduced in a very, very complicated and synthetic way by the abbot of Fiori in Calabria in southern Italy, Joachim. And he did so because the Pope Lucius III was bewildered by the social upheaval of the age in which he lived. And there was, uh, he, he desired some kind of roadmap to the future. And so he asked the abbot, Joachim, who was uh, a noted scripture scholar, to synthesize for him the, uh, the, 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 the projection into the future based, based on sacred scripture, but also on what he called the Sibyl. The Sibyl was originally an oracle in Delphi in ancient Greece, but there was a collection of private revelations that emerged in the, in the Middle Ages, and they were simply called the Sibyl. And because they were seen as kind of oracles, kind of, uh, we, we have much of that. For instance, we have the prophecies of Malachi, and we have Nostradamus, and we have all those kinds of things. All sorts of private revelation that people enjoy, actually, um, going to to see if they can't get some kind of a grip on the future. Well, Lucius III was no different. And so, in fact, as the Sibyl shows up in the famous uh, Requiem Mass sequence called Dies Irae, which many of uh, of you who are older will remember from from childhood, the song Dies Irae, Dies Ella, and so forth. The English translation of that, one of the English translations of that is, that day of wrath, that dreadful day, shall heaven and earth and ashes lay, as David and the Sibyl say. So, yeah, so the Sibyl was a very much a part of the medieval body of private revelations that were often used as uh, as prophetic lenses to try and see what lay ahead. Well, Lucius III was no different. So the abbot Joachim, therefore, um, developed a very elaborate historical thesis um, concerning the movement through time of the presence of God in the world. And he does not divide them into discrete ages of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But he says that there is a greater emphasis on each person of the Blessed Trinity during the ages that come in history. And so he associated the Old Testament um, with God the Father, the New Testament, and the Apostolic Church with Jesus Christ. And the present age 
which he projected to begin in the year 1260 AD, um, to be the age where the spirit dominated. It was in that age that he foresaw the diminishing of the institutional church and the rise of the charismatic church. Um, All of this was not ever declared as heretical. Um, And as a matter of fact, his, his schema was sufficiently integrated, sufficiently complicated, and uh, sufficiently um, uh, faithful in many ways to a legitimate perspective on the development of history. But he had the unfortunate circumstances of, in the 13th century, of a Franciscan friar at Paris, Gerard of Borgo San Donino, who decided to summarize uh, Joachim's Concordancia. And so he published a book called The Eternal Gospel. In this, Joachim misunderstood, or in this, Gerard misunderstood Joachim, and he actually divided history into three distinct, discrete periods where there is the age of the Father, the age of the Son, the age of the Spirit. And he doesn't bother to integrate them into a Trinitarian present in each age. <clears throat> he was, it's reported that Thomas Aquinas was so angry that he burned Gerard's books. Gerard was himself um, had a huge influence on the Franciscan community, um, but he ended up in prison for 18 years, refusing to recant his heresy. Joachim himself became part of the spirit of the Franciscan renewal. And uh, in fact, there is a doctoral dissertation at uh, Catholic University of America that says part of the zeal of the Franciscan missionaries in the New World in, in, in um, Central and South America was motivated by the apocalyptic, by the eschatological sense of, of the visions of Joachim. And uh, that the intention was, as Francis Xavier in the Far East, was to baptize as many as possible to make sure that when the end did come, as many of God's children as possible would enter into the eternal life with him. So it was part of the zeal of the missionary activity of the 16th century as well. Well, in our modern age also, there are many disciples of Gerard of Borgo San Donino, that basically kind of dismiss the Old Testament as the, uh, as the Gnostics did as a time of an angry God and so forth and, and say that the time of basically the presence of, of Jesus Christ, um, the, uh, at the, the presence of Jesus Christ, that uh, he kind of fades into the background as the age of the Holy Spirit <clears throat> dawns upon humanity. And I dare say that that's part of the strange movements that took place after the Second Vatican Council, Um, not from the conciliar documents, but from what we call the spirit of Vatican II, which was almost a complete sense of now this is the new age. We have it, we certainly have it in uh, Joseph Komanchik from Catholic University, Albergio in Bologna, and a disciple of them, um, uh, Cardinal Tagli of the Philippines, all who see the Second Vatican Council as an era of rupture from the past, of a lack of continuity in the past, something that Benedict XVI condemned very roundly, saying that, you know, that there cannot be a rupture in the Church. But they basically fall into the category 
of the uh, of the radical Joachimists who see the final age dawning upon us as the age of the spirit, the age of freedom, the age of the disintegration of the institution of the church, um, the age of the coming of the spirit. It was in many ways ushered in by Cardinal Sunins and others in the in the radical not in in the radical charismatic movement which blossomed. Um, right after the Second Vatican Council. So it is a perspective within Christianity that comes and that goes and that has different times when it's, when it's in force, different times when it dominates and then, and then fades away and then dominates again and fades away. I would say that in the present age, we're probably in, in the eternal gospel age of the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and uh, because we do see um, among the Christian peoples, a disintegration of the institutional life of the church, a sense of a greater right to do whatever they please, um, and somehow or other this freedom is a gift of the Holy Spirit that takes them away from the church rather than into the reform of the church. And uh, it, is, it is a thread, and it's a very strong word to say this, but in a sense it is an historical thread, uh, a historical heretical thread that flows that flows not from uh, that flows not from Joachim of Fiore, but from Gerard of Borgo San Donino and his gos- and his eternal gospels, for it does not integrate the ages of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, but leaves them as discrete time periods in history and so liberates us in many ways. Um, The rejection, for instance, of the Ten Commandments, which is kind of a rule of survival in a primitive society, actually. We might take note of that in the modern world. Um, are considered, you know, no longer binding on us. For instance, the, uh, the moral precepts of the Old and the New Testament are uh, jettisoned today in all sorts of of movements of free sexual expression and and uh, gender ideology and all those kinds of things. So yeah, so we're in then a time when uh, we're in then a time when we can look back in history and say, well, you know, this is how Joachim interpreted what the Sibyl said. And so we're finding now a resurgence of a sense of private revelation in each individual person and a sense of a turning away of the continuity and the integrity of the Old Testament, the New Testament, and church history. That being the case, and that being the background for the discussion of what Jesus is talking about in the Holy Spirit, I think is an important, is an important uh, background to have because, we, because we, we get very confused, I think, about who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit is. Um, we believe in a triune God. We have some comfort with the idea of a father. We have some comfort with the idea of a son. But we seldom know exactly what to do with the Holy Spirit. And it is in the realm of the Holy Spirit, then, that, uh, that the proclamations of the Sibyl come to the fore and that uh, the prophecies of the oracles then begin to integrate into Christianity, distort Christianity, and take deep root in individual persons, souls, and minds, and hearts. But Jesus kind of puts a corrective to all of this in the gospel today. And he said, Jesus says to his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I shall ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. 
the prerequisite for the reception of the Holy Spirit is not wisdom or freedom, it is love. And that Jesus says, if you will keep my, if you love me and keep my commandments, then I shall ask the Father and he shall give you another advocate. The anger and the rage that we see in the freedom movements of the church today are, do not bespeak the qualifications of the Spirit that Jesus lays out in the very first sentence of this gospel. But then he goes on to say, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we shall come to him and make our home with him. There's two tremendously important things here. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. It brings to the fore the whole question of what does it mean to love? It is a word that is cheapened by popular culture and has been cheapened by popular culture, I don't know, perhaps forever uh, in the human story, but certainly in spades in the modern world. For love can mean anything from, from uh, I, you, sometimes you hear that the orgy that took place at Woodstock in 1968 called the Summer of Love. It was the summer of sex. It was not the summer of love. And, uh, and the disasters and the tragedies of, uh, that flowed out of that bizarre gathering um, are something that has stayed with us even to the present day, but were decimated a whole generation in the 70s and the 80s. So that was not love. So what is love? Is love infatuation? Is love, for instance, you know, you can get young people who are fans of celebrities and movie stars and maybe not even young people because the news media somehow or other thinks that celebrities are, are important news um, and the realities of the world and the people who live in that world kind of take second place to what uh, so-and-so says or so-and-so says or so-and-so does. Um, the re- proper response to which is, oh, well. But, uh, but nevertheless, um, we can be fans. Is that love, to be a fan of somebody? Is it love to be infatuated with someone? Certainly, infatuation is something that brings people together, that enables, for instance, a relationship perhaps to develop that can turn into a mature relationship, but is not itself a relationship and is not itself the true and the deepest meaning of love. What does it mean? It's very difficult, but if we look at the Lord Jesus, we find very interestingly in all, especially in John's Gospel, in his relationship with the Father, that he always says, I do whatever the Father tells me to do. I say whatever the Father tells me to say, for the Father and I are one. That there is perhaps an interior definition to love which might be helpful and useful to us. It's not the total definition of it, and it's not, you know, um, something that is just um, everybody can just use. But basically, it seems to me that one of the criteria of love that we can experience um, outside of our emotional life is that love is that quality of relationship with another, 
which places the well-being of the other over and against the well-being of the self, that allows the, the well-being of the other to trump self-interest. We see this very particularly in the Garden of Eden, when Jesus is in agony and Jesus sweats blood and Jesus says, Father, let this cup pass from me, but your will not mine be done. That surrender to what is best known to be best by the other is an act of supreme love, an act of absolute love. And Jesus then turns to his disciples and he says, greater love than this has no man, then he lay down his life for his friend. It certainly is not in our best interest to die for our friend, but it could very easily be in the best interest of the friend for us to take the hit for him or her. Um, This, I think, can often be experienced in marriage, experienced in in parenthood, experienced actually in authentic and deep friendships, where the life of the other becomes more of a concern to us than our own well-being. And that, I think, if you love me, you will keep my word. In other words, if you love me, you will acknowledge what is best is what I say and not what you think. A lesson that tells us that there is a great lack of love for the Lord Jesus in the Christian community today because we decide that his word is not something that we should sacrifice or give ourselves for. When a cardinal of the Roman Catholic Church can say, oh, Jesus is too harsh and this is the 21st century, we're going to have to change things. Um, That is not the language of love. That's the language of Joachimism, and, uh, and that's really interesting. But he says, if you keep my word, that means you love me, and my Father will love you. In other words, our best interests become a priority in the will of the mind of the Father, and we will come to you and make our home with you. It is in the old Catholic tradition of understanding that God will only do for us what is good for our salvation. That doesn't mean he will take away all misery, all pain, all suffering, all unhappiness, all disappointment, any of those kinds of things. What it does mean, what it does mean is that he will give us in our lives that which we need in order to be saved. And that is how he shows his love to us. And that is how he loves us for our best interest, not necessarily our perceptions of our best interest, but God's knowledge of what is in our best interest. It's what, in fact, gives suffering meaning within the authentic Christian tradition. Not only does it allow us to understand this is part of the process of our salvation, but it is also something that we can share with the Son for the redemption of others. For, as St. Francis said, if God, if Jesus desire, loves you enough to allow you to share part of the cross with him, why should we complain? Then he says, those who do not love me do not keep my words. Very simply, if you do not love me, you will not listen to my word. You will not obey it. You will create your own word, like the, like the unnamed cardinal that I just mentioned. For these people are unwittingly, um, in, a, in a deep sense, in a disturbing sense, joachimists. For they believe that in the age of the Spirit that there is total freedom and that there is no bind, there is no 
um, restraints in in uh, in in our lives. True love is tied up with sacrifice. When the well-being of another is more important to us than our own, that costs us something because our tendency is ourselves. It is how we are created. It doesn't mean we're horrible human beings to feel like that. We're saying that's normal, that's natural. Love transcends the natural in caring for the well-being of the other. It is very often, it, of course, its, its, its perfect manifestation is in martyrdom, in laying down our life for our friend, if the friend is the Lord Jesus, or if the friend is, is as Maximil Ben Colby, um, our, our friend or the other prisoners in Auschwitz or whatever. Um, nevertheless, laying down one's life for one's friends is a martyrdom. We do that actually if we really believe this, this is actually part of our everyday life. This is something that goes on in our world every day, in our relationships with those people whom we care for, those people whom we love. We always, we always look out for their best interests and place those before our own. A parent does that most of the time with the children. Um, a husband or a wife would do that most of the time with the other. That doesn't mean you become simply passive wet blankets in your relationships with other people. For sometimes the well-being of the other person is not passivity. Um, so it is, but it is the interior motivation as to why we're doing it. Are we doing it because we're angry or to argue with someone? Are we doing it because, you know, we don't like them, we can't stand them? Or because in their error they can harm themselves in relationship to their eternal life. So then, um, Jesus then says, and those who do not love me do not keep my words. Look around and find us in a world um, euphemistically filled with Joachites. Um, and my word is not my own. It is the word of the one who sent me. Once again, this affirmation of the love relationship between the father and the son, the father's word is more important to me than my own wisdom. So I have said these things to you while still with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all I have said to you. Interesting also, because we hear the word of God, we hear the proclamation, we hear the, uh, the, uh, the, the teachings of the church, we hear all of these kinds of things, and... Uh, and oftentimes, we don't really grasp what they mean. We look at them, for instance, even in the case of morality, as rules. And there are certain forms of moral theology, that's what it is, as rules. Um, but ultimately, there's a deeper reality behind all of this. And that deeper reality behind all of this is a striving to conform our lives to the Word of God to conform our lives to the wisdom of the divine that trumps our own wisdom and that is enables our minds and our hearts and our souls to expand in a form not only associated with wisdom but authentic love for others. And so who is going, how does this happen to us and how do we know this? We go back and we look at the apostles. Jesus taught them, Jesus encouraged them, Jesus witnessed to them, Jesus did all sorts of things, and they understood very little of it. When Jesus says to Peter, 
you know, you are upon the, on the upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell should not prevail against it. And then says that he's going to suffer and die, and Peter remonstrates with him, the gospel says. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, not because he hates Peter, but because he knows what the source of human contradiction to the divine will and word is all about. Um, it has its origin in the powers of darkness, and we see that in the present world today as well. And um, and so how do we know? Well, the apostles, even when Jesus rose from the dead, they're shocked because they did not yet understand what it meant to rise from the dead. So what happens then is the coming of the Holy Spirit enlightens them. And in enlightening them, um, he he enables them to understand what it is that... Uh, he enables them to understand what it is that the uh, that Jesus has said, and so in John's Gospel, it's when he enters the room through the closed door and says, "Peace be with you," breathes on them, receive the Holy Spirit. Luke's narrative in the Acts of the Apostles and in in the Gospel also is that uh, they're gathered together in prayer. Luke has them going into the temple to pray in Jerusalem. And then with Mary in their midst, Mary, the mother of the Lord, the Holy Spirit descends on them in tongues of flame. They grasp then the teaching of the Lord. They understand then the teaching of the Lord. And then they rush out into the streets to proclaim it to others with enormous success and enormous response. And so the Holy Spirit then becomes his function in the church is not to cause havoc, is, is not to deny the validity of the age of the Father and the Son, but it, and not to create a sense of chaotic freedom in the world. He comes to help us to grasp and to understand the Word of God whether that word has come to us in the Law and the Prophets or whether that word has come to us in the personal revelation of God in the person of his Son in Jesus Christ in time and history and uh, throughout the ages. So that basically what we, what we are grasping here is that the, uh, the spirit of wisdom and understanding is that which comes into the church in order that we might be able to comprehend, grasp, and understand the meaning of God's word, the meaning of his proclamation in scripture and church. And that the denial of this, of course, is authentically the denial of the spirit and the acceptance of a kind of heretical notion of the spirit, a joachist um, understanding of the spirit, and one which separates us from our past and one which separates us from the fullness of the revelation of God to all the peoples of the earth in the midst of this creature that we call time, which never passes, never passes away and never comes to be until it ends in the second coming of the Lord. So as we celebrate then the Feast of Pentecost, if that's what this gospel responds to, or even the presence of the Holy Spirit in the church, let us celebrate the gift of wisdom and understanding of the gift that the Lord has given us to know the Father and the Son's revelation and to incorporate it and live it in wisdom in our lives. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com.